like to ask you to begin uh, praying this week for a busload of high school kids and uh, about a dozen Young Life staff people, volunteer and uh, professional staff people on their way to Young Life's fabulous Woodleaf Camp up in the California Motherlode. Uh, there are about 70 high school kids on this bus, uh, most of them not yet Christians, uh, most of them not even exposed to, to the Christian faith, and they'll be going, they went down to Santa Cruz for some fun on the beach, and then over to Marriott and San Jose, and, and then over to Woodleaf, where they're going to hear the gospel preach for a week, and I'd like to ask you to pray for the, the leaders of this group and for Young Life crowd on that bus. It's our desire to see a Young Life club in every high school uh, in Boise, not only in Capitol and Bora, where there are currently clubs, but in Boise High School next year, and Ridian and Bora and, and uh, Centennial High School eventually. So would you pray for these kids, that the Lord reach their hearts, that come back knowing the Lord and anxious to share the gospel with their friends. Would you turn with me please, to the third chapter of Philippians, Philippians 3. And I'd like to begin by reading a description of a businessman that was written 250 years ago. Kalaitis has traded about 30 years in the greatest city of the kingdom. He has been for many years constantly increasing his trade and his fortune. Every hour of the day is for him an hour of business, and though he eats and drinks very heartily, yet every meal seems to be in a hurry. And he would say grace if he had the time. Kalaitis ends every day at the tavern, but has not leisure to be there until near 9 o'clock in the evening. He is always forced to drink a good hearty glass, drive thoughts of business out of his head, and make his spirits drowsy enough for sleep. He does business all the time that he is rising and has settled several matters before he can get to his compting house. His prayers are a short ejaculation or two, which he never misses in stormy weather because he always has something or other at sea. Kalaitis will tell you with great pleasure that he has been in this hurry for so many years and that it would have killed him long ago, but that it has been a rule with him to get out of the town every Saturday and make Sunday a day of good refreshment in the country. He's now so rich that he would leave off his business and amuse his old age with building and furnishing a fine house in the country, but that he's afraid he should grow melancholy if he was to quit his business. He will tell you with great gravity that it's a dangerous thing for a man that has been used to get money ever to leave it off. If thoughts of God happen at any time to steal into his head, Kalaitis contents himself with thinking that he never was a friend to heretics and infidels and that he has always been civil to the minister of his parish. And uh, I read this. This is written by William Law back in 1729. And I uh, couldn't help but think that the more things change, the more they stay the same. There's another more contemporary statement of the same, uh, same notion in Virginia Basian's little poem. This is the age of the half-read page and the quick hash and the mad dash. The bright night with the, with the nerves tight, the plane hop and the brief stop. The lamp tan in a short span, the big shot in a hot spot. And the brain strain and the heart pain and the cat naps till the spring snaps and the fun's done. And I read that uh, for my friends who are workaholics 
and all of us that are addicted to trying to win the rat race. This, uh, this text that I've chosen this morning, Philippians 3, speaks to, uh, to all of us in this regard. Paul says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it's a safeguard for you. Uh, I, we read this and we think, that's just like a preacher. He says, finally, and then he goes on for two more chapters <laughs> or another 30 minutes. Uh, actually, the word that's translated finally here is just a transitional term. It, could, it has the idea of additionally and usually indicates some turn of argument in one of Paul's books. He does uses the word in the two Thessalonian letters in Second Corinthians and Ephesians this way, just indicating the next point on his argument. The point he wants to reinforce is this notion of rejoicing in the Lord, which he says, I've talked about before, and I'm going to repeat it. It's not troublesome to me to repeat it, and I hope it's not irksome to you, he says. But I'm going to keep saying this over and over and over and over again. Rejoice in the Lord. Now, we have to understand what Paul is saying. Uh, The word for rejoice here is, is not the normal word for joy. When we think of uh, joy, we think of a surface emotion. He's rather talking about a deep-seated contentment. That would be a better, a better term to translate the idea. Satisfaction is a good word. Find your satisfaction in the Lord. That's the emphasis. The emphasis is not so much on rejoicing as it is rejoicing in the Lord. In other words, what he's saying is that the only place you're going to find satisfaction is in the Lord. There aren't any other places to look for. You will run yourself ragged throughout your entire life, and so will I, if we think that we're going to find satisfaction in in our jobs, in our marriages, in our children, in some kind of academic achievement. In athletic accomplishments, you see that we always start out life thinking these are the things that are going to satisfy us. We will find our security and our significance in getting a good-paying job, getting married, having children, getting to the top of the uh, of the ladder, corporate ladder, making a great deal of money, retiring to leave a, a life of ease and leisure, and none of these things satisfy. And, and, and Paul's trying to warn us that they don't. That's why he. He he keeps saying this over and over again. Find your satisfaction in the Lord. I I, uh, remind a lot of my men friends of this who are going through the so-called midlife crisis, the 40-year itch, however you want to to describe it, the male menopause. There doesn't seem to be any good physiological reason for, for the wackiness that strikes men about age 35 or 40 when they uh, leave their uh, wives of 25 years and perm their hair and start wearing gold medallions and buy a Porsche. Uh, I don't have anything against uh, permed hair. It's just impossible for me. Uh, And I, I used to have a sports car until I discovered after I had a family that four on the floor meant the kids. So I'm not against those sorts of things. It's just that they're symptoms of, of, of a much deeper problem, kind of malaise that sets in at midlife when you, it finally dawns on you that you haven't arrived, you haven't made it. So maybe if you start over again, you can make it. But there are only a finite number of times you can go around, and after a while you get real long in the tooth and you realize that you're not going to make it. 
That's sad. And Paul's trying to warn us away from that sort of folly because you can literally waste your entire life. I just uh, reread this past week portions of Robert Ringer's book, Looking Out for Number One. And I came across a section that I'd forgotten about. Uh, He refers to a a certain Harold Hart, whom he said epitomized the typical Lower East Side to Park Avenue success story. Having begun his struggle as a poor youngster, Mr. Hart had eventually amassed a considerable stack of chips, purportedly in the area of $50 million. At the time I first met him, he was already in his early 70s. And he went with him, he went to him with what what he calls one of these LSD deals. And if you've never never read Ringer, you don't know what he's talking about. But he's talking about the kind of deal that only someone under the influence of LSD would ever concoct. You know, a gold-panning trip to Tanzania or something like that that he wants financed. So he points out that he, he, he didn't get the money. I failed, of course, to get the investment money I was naive enough to seek, but I obtained far more than I had bargained for in the way of food for thought. The biggie came one evening when I went to visit Mr. Hart on one of my LSD deal missions. When I arrived, I found him resting tranquilly in his favorite chair, garbed in silk robe and pajamas, with servants waiting on him hand and foot. I sat there a while, watching as he stared blankly into space. Finally, he muttered, You know, nature has played a great hoax on me. You work all your life, go through an endless number of struggles, play all the petty little games, and if you're lucky, you make it to the top. Well, I made it a long time ago, and you know what? It's all nonsense. It doesn't mean a thing. Nature's made a fool of me. Here I sit in poor health, exhausted from years of playing the game, well aware that time is running out, and I keep asking myself, now what, genius? What's your next brilliant move going to be? All that time I spent worrying, maneuvering, it was meaningless. My life is nothing but a big hoax. Ringer says, a few months after that pleasant little dissertation in his apartment, Harold Hart died. That was many years ago, but today his words and the tone in which he spoke them still ring in my ears. Now, actually, Ringer missed the point. If you go on and read his book, you'll know that he did. But uh, he gained a bit of wisdom from Mr. Hart. I don't know how many of you saw 2020 last week, but there was an interview. I think it was last week or week before last. There was an interview with uh, that Barbara Walters had with... Uh, What's the name of the comedian that just died? Yeah, Jackie Gleason. Shortly before his death, she interviewed him. And uh, he said, I I lived my life to make money, and then I made money, and I realized you have to spend money in order to enjoy money, so I spent money lavishly. And he said, I've come to the conclusion it's all meaningless. It's empty. And Hugh Downs' comment was, uh, there's a man that gained wisdom in his old age. Well, yes, he did. He, he, he gained some wisdom. He, he saw that these things don't pan out. They don't pay off. Payday is never the, the payoff. There's always an emptiness, a dissatisfaction. There's an itch that you can't scratch. He saw that. But he didn't see that the answer is God, you see. That's why Paul makes this point, and he makes it over and over and over again. Find your satisfaction in the Lord. Because you're never going to find it in money, in influence, in power, in achievement, in your family, in your children. You're never going to find it there. There will be a measure of happiness, but there will always be that, that underlying discontent. 
That's what uh, George MacDonald calls God's infinite unrest. A hunger, not at first after known good, but something vague. We know not, and yet would. The veiled Isis, thy will not understood. A conscience tossing ever on my breast. And something deeper that will not be expressed. It's that something more that we hunger for that always eludes us. Always, you see. That's why Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. There isn't any other source of satisfaction. There isn't any other way to find security and to find significance other than in the Lord. Now, that's his point. And Paul says, I'm going to say that over and over and over again until you understand the truth of that statement. Now, he goes on in verse 2 to talk about those who would deny that truth. Beware of the dogs. And I say, what is this, a word for letter carriers and meter readers? <clears throat> Beware of dogs, the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Uh, who are these bad guys that Paul has in, in mind that, that, that he makes these harsh statements about? They are people that New Testament scholars refer to as Judaizers. That's not a biblical term, but it's a good term to describe them. That suffix "ize" uh, I-Z-E, is one that we tack on a noun to make a verb out of it. And we do so in order to signify making something out of something else. If we sterilize something, we make it sterile. If we Christianize someone, we make them Christian. If you Judaize someone, you make a Jew out of them. And uh, so the, the, that's, a, that's a fair name. For these people. Here, here's what would happen. Paul would go into a region, he began to preach. He'd preach in the synagogues. Normally they wouldn't hear him and they'd toss him out. So he'd go out on the streets and he'd start preaching and people would come to him, those that were hungry to know God and they'd hear of God's love in Christ and they'd accept the fact that they were approved and loved and accepted by God because of the atonement, because of Christ's death. And, and they'd move into a relationship with God and Paul would form them into a church and appoint leaders, and he'd go on, and these rascals would come in right behind him, and they'd say, this fellow Paul isn't even an apostle. He doesn't even know what he's talking about. He's not one of the twelve. It's all right to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. That's okay. But, but, you see, you have to really be a Jew in order to be a Christian. You have to worship at the temple. You have to be circumcised. You have to keep the law. And... Uh, it, it angered Paul, angered him terribly that people would do this because that's a subversion of the good news. That turns the good news into bad news, that you have to do something in order to make God love you. And Paul wanted them to understand that God already loves you, and he's already done everything that he can do to open a way of access, companionship, fellowship, friendship with him. We just want you to walk with him, see. And these guys were undoing all of that, and it just... It just sent Paul up in flames every time he heard it. Paul was very patient with non-Christians, just average garden variety unbelievers. He loved and tolerated and was infinitely patient with, but false teachers he was not because these people were subverting the gospel. And so that's why he calls them names. <laughs> he says, they're dogs. By the way, three times he says, beware, watch out for these guys. He says, they're, they're dogs. Now, uh, that's not such a bad term for us because, you know, we keep dogs in the house. But in those days, 
Dogs were more like jackals than our pets, and they lived off of the garbage dumps. They haunted the local dumps. They were scavengers. They ate garbage. And interestingly enough, it was a word that the Jews used to describe the early Christians. Because the early Christians didn't eat kosher. They realized that they weren't under the law. They didn't have to uh, keep the cash fruit, the, the dietary system, so that, you know, they ate ham sandwiches and whatnot. And the Jews would look at them and say, that's garbage. And so they called them dogs because they ate garbage. And also because they were outside. Dogs were pariahs. They were outside. They didn't let them in their house the way we do. And so they, that was the name that Jews used for Gentiles and then for Christians, which Paul turned around and used on them. They call you garbage eaters. Actually, they are the ones who dine on garbage, untruth, falsehood, you see. Now, remember, he's talking about false teachers, not unbelievers. And secondly, he says they're, they're evil workers. The word he uses for evil means pernicious, dangerous. These guys are a menace, he's saying. Watch out for them. They're dangerous. And thirdly, they are of the false circumcision. Now, I have to explain something, okay? It's a little difficult in a crowd, public crowd, but I'm going to do it anyway. Does everybody know what circumcision is? Circumcision is a surgical procedure that involves the removal of the male foreskin. I have to explain that because some people don't really understand what the procedure is. But it's more, it was more than a hygienic measure in ancient Israel. It was a symbol of the cutting off of the flesh, of the old life, a symbol of the covenant that God made with his people. God said to Israel, first Abraham, then to Abraham's descendants, I will be your God and you will be my people and I will bless you and I will enrich you and through the whole world. And through you, the whole world will be enriched. And circumcision was the sign, the symbol of that relationship. It did not create the relationship. Paul argues strongly on that point in Galatians and in Romans. Came later, came later, years later. Promise was given to Abraham, and then he was circumcised as the sign. Circumcision is like our wedding bands. They symbolize the union. They, it symbolizes my fidelity to my wife, but it doesn't create it. And that's something else. And Paul says, that's what circumcision is for. It's the symbol. But these people have distorted the symbol and they've made it the means. They're saying, you have to be circumcised before God can approve of you. God doesn't accept you until you're circumcised. But he uses a, a, a strange word. And you just have to understand Paul. Paul's a very crusty fellow. And he just said whatever he thought. Okay. The word for circumcision is peri. Tome. Tome is the word for cut. Peri means around. Cut around is the word for circumcision. Paul's word here is kata tome. Cut off. Now you can just imagine in your own mind what Paul is saying. I won't try to explain it to you. This, is, this was Paul's attitude toward people that were mutilators of the flesh. They are butchers, he says. Get that straight. When they come to you and say, you have to be circumcised before God will accept you, they are like the mutilators in the Old Testament whose, you know, whose, whose surgical procedures are prohibited. They were not to do this sort of thing in the Old Testament. Beware, he says. Look out for these people. They're dangerous. They'll undermine your faith. They'll take you away from Christ. Look out for them. Now, Paul says, these people are not, they don't represent God and the truth. 
Anyone who comes to you and tells you you have to do something to gain God's approval, and you need to recognize, Paul would say the same thing to them. If they come to you and say, you've got to be baptized before God can accept you. You say, well, baptism is analogous to circumcision. just a symbol. That's all. God doesn't accept us on the basis of anything we do. He accepts us on the basis of what God has done. You can be circumcised, catechized, baptized, simonized, you name it. It has nothing to do with your relationship to Christ. Our access to God is as a result of the atonement. Christ died for us. He died for our sins. That's what opens the way to God's presence. We don't have to do anything except the gift that's ours. True of the initial commitment to Christ is true of our ongoing relationship to Christ. We grow as he gives gifts, gives grace to us. He gives us the capacity to change and to grow. It all comes from him. And our failures do not, dis- dis- uh, do not disqualify us, and our good deeds do not necessarily qualify us. God loves you just the way you are and forgives you just the way you are on the basis of, of Christ's death. That's what grace means. And that's why Paul just absolutely went, was enraged by people that would take that away from us because it takes away the heart of the, of the gospel. Paul says, don't, don't mess with them. Dogs, dangerous people. Uh, mutilators of the flesh. On the other hand, he says, we are the true circumcision. We are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now, wherever you read the word flesh, just insert ourselves. Uh, The flesh is not skin. It it represents our humanity. Our essential humanity, apart from God, can be used in a good sense. In the the New Testament, it can be used in a bad sense. But when our humanity acts apart from God, it's bad. When it's it's neutral, then it's it's a neutral thing. He's talking rather about ourselves apart from God. What Paul is saying is, I don't put any confidence in myself. We, he says, are the true circumcision. We, that is the church of Jesus Christ. You and me, us, sitting here in the 20th century. We are the true circumcision, even though we don't bear the marks of circumcision necessarily in our bodies. Symbol may not be there, but the reality is there. We're the people of God. We're the covenant people. That's what Paul is saying. God would say to us, just as he said to Israel, I'm your God, and you're my people. And your heart has been circumcised, even though your body is, doesn't bear that, that mark. I, I don't know what future God has yet for Israel. I'm agnostic about that. He, he may very well have a purpose yet for Israel. I think he might. But the point is, today, we, Jews and Gentiles in the church, constitute the true Israel. We're the true covenant people. That's why he says we're the, we're the true circumcision, in contrast to these other fellows who inflict these marks on your body, but that's not the real thing, he says. And we worship in the Spirit of God. That brings memories of, of, of the word that Jesus said to the woman at the well. She said, you know, you Jews say we should worship in Jerusalem. We Samaritans worship up here on Mount Gerizim. What do you say? Jesus said, basically, he said, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether you worship there or here. What matters is that you worship in the heart. In spirit and in truth. And that's what Paul is saying. You don't have to make the trek to Jerusalem to worship. You don't have to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to have access to God. You don't have to go down there and sacrifice. The temple was still standing when Paul wrote these words. The Jews were still going to the temple. They were still offering sacrifice. Paul says, you don't have to do that. 
You worship in spirit. Worship in your heart. Do, do you folks realize, those of you sitting out there that know Jesus Christ, that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit? Now God is, you know, sometimes we say this is God's house. No, 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 this is not God's house. When all you people leave, it's just empty. God doesn't dwell here. He dwells in you. And all of you are little sanctuaries that go out of this place bearing the presence of God in your heart. That's what Paul means. We have access to God all the time. He's right here. He hasn't turned his back on us. He isn't frowning on us. We don't have to please him. He's already pleased with us. He approves of us. Because of the atonement. See? So we are the true circumcision, the covenant people of God. We have access to God all the time. We're the temple of God. We, the church. And thirdly, uh, he says we, we put our glory in Christ Jesus. Uh, Christ, as you know, is the equivalent, Greek equivalent, of the Hebrew word for Messiah. And Messiah, Jesus, the Jews had gloried for hundreds of years in the fact that Messiah was to come through through that line, through the line of Abraham, through the nation of Israel. Now, Paul says, I want you to understand that we are the true Israel, and now the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, is our Messiah. We glory in him, and we put no confidence in the flesh. We're not counting on anything that, that we do in order to gain acceptance uh, before God. Now, Paul says, if I wanted to uh, base my relationship to God, my access to him on on my credentials, I certainly have better credentials than anyone else. Verse 5, circumcised the eighth day. Uh, he first refers to his ancestry. If He's very proud of the fact that he was not a Johnny-come-lately. He wasn't a Gentile who had converted to Judaism. He, he wasn't a proselyte. He was born a Jew. He was born into a Jewish household. And according to the law, he was circumcised on the eighth day. So he bore the marks of circumcision. If he wanted to glory in that, he could. If that was the basis of his acceptance by God, he could point to that fact. He was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel. He was a true blue Jew. He was born a Jew. He wasn't a Gentile. Of the tribe of Benjamin, proud little tribe that uh, from which the first king of Israel came, Saul, who was Paul's namesake, as you know. Uh, Paul's name originally was Saul, and it was changed to Paul later. And Benjamin was also the little tribe that was always loyal to David and to his seed. Benjamin was the only tribe that went with Judah when the ten tribes to the north seceded. And Jeroboam took them off in rebellion. Little Benjamin was loyal to David and, and his seed from that time on. Paul was very proud of that. A Hebrew of Hebrews, that's the, uh, as you know, a uh, Hebrew idiom for the superlative degree. I was a super Hebrew, he says. Now, as to my orthodoxy, he says, uh, as to law, I was a Pharisee. Pharisees weren't all uh, hypocrites. Pharisees uh, uh, were like today's conservatives, evangelicals. Most of us, if we lived back then, would be Pharisees. Take the scriptures seriously, believe in the inspiration and authority of them, believe in the resurrection in contrast to the Sadducees, who were the more radical liberals of that day, and they, you know, they didn't believe these things, didn't believe in supernatural phenomena, did not believe in angels. But Paul believed the Bible. He was a Bible-toting, Bible-preaching Jew. Carried Schofield Bible around with him wherever he went. 
So, you know, he says, if you want to talk ancestry, if that's what puts you in favor with God, I got it. Hebrew the Hebrews, super Hebrew, he says. Want to talk orthodoxy? Had it straight. And all my theological ducks in a row. It's just orthodox as I could be. As to zeal, now he turns to activity. And not only did he, did he believe the right things, but he was engaged in the right kind of activities. At least he thought they were. As to zeal, a pers- persecutor of the church, the word means to pursue doggedly. It's the same word that's used later when he refers to his pursuit of Christ. He organized and implemented the, the attacks upon the church that existed in his day because he thought that's what God wanted him to do. As to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. As to morality, he, he, he was a paragon. I don't think Paul would have said that if it weren't true. I think when it came to being righteous, he hit the long ball. He was a good man. And when he failed, he, he did the things that the law prescribed in order to cover his sin. He was blameless in terms of the righteousness granted under the law. But notice what he says. Whatever things were gained to me. Those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He uses a tense that indicates an action that he took in the past that has ongoing results. I have counted them, I go on counting them, and then in order to underscore that notion, he says, more than that, I count all things. Not only these things that I've mentioned, these assets that I could call your attention to, by which I could be commended to God. But I, I am counting all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Messiah Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and am counting them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. I told you Paul was a crusty fellow. If you look in the margin you'll see that the word is translated rubbish in the text is actually the word for dumb. You know, it doesn't quite come across when you read rubbish or even dumb. You know, what Paul is saying is when I look back at the things that I used to count on, which I thought rendered God favorable to me, I just count them a big pile of camel dumb. Or any other word you want to insert that says it for you. Now, Paul's not being crass. He's just saying what's on his heart. That's all. Just a bunch of garbage, he says. Has no value, whatever, the things that I counted on. What? Oh, my education, my background, my personality, my humor, my intelligence, my zeal. Those are all good things. Nothing wrong with any of them, Paul says. They are of no value in gaining God's approval. They don't turn God's head. He's not impressed. That's why Paul says, I don't put any confidence in the flesh. Why? Well, he says, I just want to know him. I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and turn out to be found in him, safe and secure. You know, what we're looking for basically is security and significance, a sense of value and worth, the knowledge that we're important to someone that our life is meaningful and that we're secure. We're not going to be broken and shattered, destroyed by life. That's what we're looking for. 
Paul says the, the, the reason I don't count on any of these things that I normally would reckon upon is just so I'll turn out to be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. Not because I've cleaned up my act. Not because I'm doing better than I was doing last year. Not because I keep the law strictly. That's not where righteousness comes from. But that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And all of this, he says, is to the end that I may know him. That's what it's all for. That's the end of it all, is to know him. And the power of his resurrection, he says, once you get to know him, you begin to experience the power that raised him from the dead, the power that set the universe in motion. God begins to demonstrate that power toward us. Oh, yeah, he says it also involves the fellowship of his sufferings. When Paul first met the Lord on the road to Damascus, the Lord told him what great things he was going to suffer for his sake. It wasn't going to be a bed of roses. He didn't tell him how much he was going to, how easy life was going to be. He said it's going to be tough. Nevertheless, he got to know God. He got to walk with the Lord Jesus. And that's all he wanted. He got to experience something of his power. He got to experience something of his suffering. He became more and more conformed to his death. He was more and more willing to put to death these things that he normally counted on. Why? Verse 11, in order that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And you read this and you think, oh, Paul undid the whole thing. Because it sounds like he's saying, if I get it right, then God will raise me from the dead. And if I don't, then I'll just lie stone cold dead in in the grave. But that's not what he's saying. Because he's not talking about a physical resurrection here. He's talking about a spiritual resurrection. He's talking about life, really living, which is what we want. The word that he uses for resurrection is not the normal word for a resurrection in the New Testament. It literally means a standing up out, to be a standout. And uh, you know from verse 12 he's not talking about a physical resurrection because he says, not that I have already attained it. What? Obtained the resurrection from the dead. Well, of course he hadn't. He was still alive. He hadn't died yet. He still had it. He, he still had his unredeemed body. So he couldn't be talking about a physical resurrection. He's talking rather about the experience of resurrection life. Really living what Jesus called an abundant life. He said, I'm come that you might have life and might have it more abundantly. And what Paul is saying, and he said it over and over and over and over again, is that you're never going to find life in your marriage. There will be an element of joy there. But you're never going to find satisfaction there. You're never going to find satisfaction in achievement in business, men or women. You're not going to find satisfaction in athletic achievement or academic achievement. You're not going to find it in money. You're not going to find it in retirement. You're going to find it in our Lord Jesus. And when he becomes everything, then you have life. Ah, it's not going to be easy. So, you know, you're going to fellowship in Christ's suffering. It's going to be a tough times, hard times ahead. But you're going to have the thing that you've been looking for all your life. When we become Christians, we there's a process that uh, the Lord takes us all through. The first thing he does is begin to speak to us about some of the things in our life that have always bothered us. You know, the things that got us in trouble with the law and with one another, you know, the drugging and drinking and womanizing and lying and stealing and those are the things that we you know we like to see eradicated they, you know it's good to see those things go because all they did is cause a whole lot of trouble 
glad to get out of that. You know, you're glad to get out of that mischief. Then, then the Lord moves to a deeper level. It takes a while for Him to deal with these things, and some people struggle, clear through their Christian life with some of them. But these are the things that we don't have any, we don't have any doubt about them. We want them to go. We need them to go. And then the Lord begins to speak to us about the secret sins of the heart, pride, prejudice, greed, selfish ambition, gossip, and these things that we never even thought about being wrong before. And all of a sudden we realize those things are wrong, and they're causing just as much trouble as the, the crasser, grosser sins of our life. And we begin to get a handle on a few of those things. Although, again, as you know, it's not like flipping a switch. It's a process. You grow and you fail and you grow and you fail. There's some progress, but we like to see more. But then the Lord begins to speak to us about the good things in our life. The things that we look back to that we're proud of that, that make us feel that God favors us. Our activity, for example. The fact that we're teaching a Sunday school class or involved in some kind of ministry. And you know what the Lord will do very often? He'll permit that to be taken away. That's why Paul says, uh, I have suffered the loss of all things. Maybe he lost his family because, you know, he, he, he thought he'd find some satisfaction in being a good father, giving good leadership to his family. Maybe you'll lose your family. God doesn't do that to us, but he may permit it. He may permit your husband to walk out. Or maybe it's activity, some activity that you're involved in. The Lord will take that away from you. you, For a year or so, you won't have any ministry. You may be flat on your back in bed or tied to the house because of of a baby that's come or something else that just takes away your activity. Or, and here I, I want to be very careful. I was misunderstood in the first service, and I, I don't want to mislead anyone in, the, in this service. It's even possible that the Lord could permit your morality to be taken away from you. Now, that's not a good thing, and that's not something he desires. But he may permit the evil one to play upon your life to the point that you fail miserably. And that will bring us to the end of ourselves so that we realize we can't even be proud of our morality. Our, our, our boast is in Christ. Maybe it's your temper. You know, you think, oh, me, I've, I've gotten that thing down. I haven't lost my temper in a long time. And if you're like me, that, that got you in a lot of trouble when you were a kid. And uh, you start thinking, I've got that thing in hand. And you start thinking that God must be real pleased with that. And you know what will happen? Something will happen to trigger that thing, and you will blow sky high, and you will get a real good look at yourself and realize that you cannot glory in your morality. Now, I'm not saying it's a good thing, but I think God will permit it to bring us to the end of ourselves. I think, for example, I, uh, some of you know of George MacDonald's moral fa- or Gordon MacDonald's uh, moral failure. He's the one who wrote the book, Ordering Your Private World. And uh, I, I give that book out to men right and left. Love that book. Right after he wrote that book, he was unfaithful to his wife. I'm not telling secrets. It's in all the papers and magazines. And it was devastating to him. He's come back to the Lord. He says his family is stronger than it ever was. And I believe that that's going to make a better man 
out of, out of, out of Gordon McDonald. He's going to have a deeper love for the Lord, a deeper confidence in him. Now, understand me. I'm not saying it's good. I've said it three times. Do you understand that? It's not good. But I think God may permit it because he didn't want us to boast in the flesh. No confidence in myself, but confidence in Christ. And, and really the heart of it all is just knowing him, walking with him. Getting to understand more and more of his love for you. Expressing a deeper level of devotion to him. Coming to, to see and understand his incredible, ongoing, unconditional love for you. His almost unbearable forgiveness. Once we begin to, to see that and know that and know him, then that sense of, of satisfaction comes. You know, we don't worship a book. We don't worship a theology. We all have one. I mean, none of us agree around here, but we all have one. And uh, that's not true. We, we do agree on the essential things. We worship the Messiah Jesus, the Lord Jesus. We want to love him and walk with him and put no confidence in the flesh. I want to conclude with a story that I read this past week of a man who was, uh, who was called one evening late at night by a woman that he knew whose father was dying of cancer. And uh, her father uh, was uh, uh, had just become a Christian. He'd been a, a non-Christian all of his life, had absolutely no contact with the church, didn't know anything about God, just a totally self-reliant man, discovered he had cancer, and uh, turned, turned to Christ and uh, was forgiven. And his, uh, he, he wanted to talk to someone about his prayer life because he didn't understand how to pray. So his daughter called this man and asked him if he'd come over and talk to him. And he did. And when he came in the room, the man was lying in bed. He knew he didn't have long uh, to live. The observer knew that. And there was an empty chair sitting right, right by the bed, turned to face him. And uh, the man who came in the room said, what's the chair for? And he says, well, that's what I called you about. He said, I've been trying to learn how to pray. And he said, nobody ever taught me how to pray. Never read a book on prayer. Never been to church in my life. I really didn't know anything about it. So what I did is put a chair there, and I imagined Jesus sitting in that chair, and I just talked to him. He says, is that all right? Is that off the wall? And the man assured him, no, there's, there's nothing off the wall about that, you know, because that chair is not empty. You know, the Lord is there. You just talk to him. And you tell him how you feel about everything. And you trust him. And just love him. So he did. <clears throat> and uh, uh, he, he gave that word and he left. And, and the next morning, the man's daughter called him and she said, Well, Papa slipped away last night and went to be with the Lord. And, and the man said, But did he die peacefully? And she said, Yes, he did. So as a matter of fact, I went in early in the morning and we chatted for a while and he cracked some jokes. And he seemed, seemed very much at peace. Was smiling when I came, went out of the room and an hour or so later, I went back to check and see how he was doing, and he was gone. He'd gone to be with the Lord. I said, but you know what? I said, it was the oddest thing. She said, he, his head wasn't on the bed, but it was in the chair that was next to his bed. And I thought, now there's a man that understands. And we, get, we, we complicate things. We muddy it up. We make it so difficult. But what we got is a friend, someone that loves us. Someone that accepts us. Someone that approves of us. Someone that keeps saying to us, don't, don't keep trying to work for my sake. Don't keep trying to impress me. Just, just walk with me. Just love me. Because I love you. 
And when we do that, then we begin, when we walk with Him like that, we begin to understand what it means to really live. The satisfaction that we've spent our entire life looking for becomes ours. Now let's pray. Let's stand together, will you please? What I'd like to do is take a moment to to reassess our lives. That's always a good thing. Haggai said, uh, the Lord Almighty says, consider your ways. You've, you buy clothes and you don't have enough to stay warm. You drink, but you don't have enough to slack your thirst. You eat, but you're always hungry. And he who earns wages earns wages to put it into a bag with holes. He says, consider your ways. And, and if that's your life, if you spent your whole life earning money to put it into a bag with holes, will you tell God that you, you don't want to do that anymore? You don't want to put confidence in the flesh. You don't want to waste your life. You just want to know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, and be made conformable to his death. It's all you want. You just want to know him. Lord, that's our prayer this morning. We, uh, we thank you for that incredible love that, that sent you to the cross for us while we were yet sinners, as Paul puts it. Not that we deserved it. Uh, you did it out of your goodness and out of your grace. We want to thank you for that. and It's the desire of our heart this morning to know you and to walk with you and to love with you uh, to, and, to, and to love you as you've loved us. Grant that to us, Lord. We know that even our faith is a gift. It comes because you've provided. Now will you take a moment on your own to speak to the Lord in your own heart. And then Ben is going to conclude by singing one verse of the song that he sang for an offertory. And when he's, when he's done, we'll be dismissed. But will you, will you continue to think through the week of this principle? Rejoice. In the Lord. That's what Paul wants us to know.